Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside Podcast, where we like to talk all things life, leadership, lessons, and we tend to do that in the world of sports and comedy and business and authors, and the list goes on and on. And I'm excited today. I've got a guy that I got to know a little bit virtually a few years ago through a variety of means and trying to see where I can make connections to the pretty cool stuff that Sean Lovejoy from SEC land, Alabama, which me being a Tennessee guy, I love for anybody and everybody I know to know about the SEC. And he's a college football and college basketball fan, knows a little something about Tide and Tiger World being in Alabama. I've always said it'd be the greatest state to live in if you really want to know college football well, because that rivalry and what all happens down there is pretty significant. So welcome to the podcast there, Sean. Hey, great to be with you, man. Hope we can add some value today to leaders. Amen. Appreciate that. Well, let's start with you. Give us the three-minute testimony of you coming to Christ and what he was doing to draw you in and how that happened. Glad to do it. It's such a crazy road. So I was a, I was a real estate developer, turned church planter, turned mega church pastor, turned coach. I refer to myself as a spiritual entrepreneur. I, I never wanted to be a pastor. I um, wanted to be a real estate developer. So I went to real estate school at night while I was in Sanford University in Birmingham, business administration degree. Got my real estate license when I was 19, started selling real estate. By the time I was 21, I was making a six-figure income. That used to be a lot of money. Uh, this back in the early 90s. I was the top-selling agent in the county the year I quit. Uh, my wife and I were teaching a college and career Sunday school class. And really, God brought revival to the whole church through our Sunday school class. Like, it just was crazy. Signs and wonders and miracles and life change. And we got caught up in that revival. And honestly, we've never been the same since in a good way. <laughs> Walked away from a business career and, you know, went off to seminary, took an 82% pay cut and served a couple of churches. But I always knew I was an entrepreneur. You know, I knew I wouldn't do well trying to revitalize a family run and operated Christian country club, you know, and try to turn that thing around. I just knew I was wired to be a church planter. So planted a church when I was 28 with one other couple and it grew rapidly in spite of my preaching, you know, not because of it. I always felt like I was better between Sundays. I always felt like a business guy trapped in a pastor's body, you know, or at least an executive pastor trapped in a senior pastor's body and realized a lot of pastors weren't wired like me. They were pretty good on Sundays and really bad between Sundays. Mm. And so we began to consult with churches, like how to get better between Sundays, not only like, like how, how to order your day, you know, how to have a personal development plan, you know, for you, your team, how to hire people, fire people, lead better meetings. And that just created a niche, you know, in ministry world. And But my missional engagement was the Rotary Club, the Chamber of Commerce, served on the board of a hospital and a college. And before I know it, businessmen began to ask my advice. And I realized a lot of the principles that I was coaching and teaching churches around, like, it works in the business world, too. Mm. 
when it comes to having a healthy culture and a highly aligned, you know, focused, unified team and simple systems that can scale. And so we made the second scariest decision we've ever made in our lives eight years ago to hand the church off. They'd become a mega church with multiple campuses. We didn't have to leave. We could have stayed there the rest of our lives, you know, to for potentially even more influence. And you fast forward to today, we're 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 coaching companies and churches all over North America. We have 18 coaches now, and God's just blessed our socks off, man. Hmm. That's so amazing when I hear that. I don't want to make too much of a black and white statement here, but I really believe there's something to be said for guys who could end your path through business people. And then God calls them into ministry. When I worked in youth ministry world, there was a guy who was a very successful lawyer in Columbus, Ohio, and God had told him to leave that and go become a Lutheran pastor. And uh, I think you probably know Ron Edmondson. Who's yeah, been, yeah, very yeah, well. Yeah, Ron, I think when I think of you, think of him. I think there's a very similar track. You know, he was been real involved in the chamber, doing a lot of business stuff, a variety of things. And I just think there's something for pastoral church world where that kind of background really does a lot of good, you know, not to knock the person who comes right out of college and seminary and yada, yada, yada. But I just think that kind of background where you've had that experience where your non-church people connect with you, the the key business leaders um, resonate with you, your heart, your entrepreneurial spirit. There's something to be said about that. So I didn't know that part about the Sunday school class. Tell me more about that. Was this like 10 people? Was this hundreds of people? What were the dynamics in that Sunday school class for revival to take place there? Well, you know, this is Alabama. So we're 48th on every national list. Thank God for Mississippi and Louisiana. You know, so when you when you take over a college and career Sunday school class in a rural town, it's more career than it is college folks, you know, and they're about two college students, a high school dropout, and a, a girl who got pregnant out of wedlock. And that was the Sunday school class we took over. And Trisha and I were just on fire for the Lord. And we started inviting these students over just to uh, another adult's house on Thursday nights. And we just called them share groups. And basically it was just this opportunity to come and confess your sins. <laughs> That's not a great strategy for the growth of a ministry. You know, and these kids began to open up and begin to share things. And we called them pill the paint sessions mm. because people get to share such terrible things that it would literally, we thought the paint from the walls was going to peel off. It was so hot in the room and people took drugs out of their pockets and, you know, threw it in the circle. And I mean, it was crazy. And before you know it, we were packing in 70 to hundred kids in a residential home and uh, we had to form organize this movement and it spilled over into the rest of the church. And man, it just, my wife and I got caught up in that. We just knew our lives would never be the same. And is that college young adult, which is what it basically became. I mean, is that still real? Um, and I want to say from just stuff I know about you on social media, that's still kind of true, right? You still kind of oh, have yes, that. It very much is true. You know, I, I love, I love, I speak at several colleges on a semi-regular basis and, we lead a Highlands College small group, which is connected to Church of the Highlands here at Birmingham on Monday nights. They're all called to full-time ministry, you know, vocationally. And so that's like my favorite small group ever, you know, to lead because they all have like a special calling on their lives mm. and invest into them. So we have them in our home every Monday night, even today. So we've been just within the gathering with what I do for my day job about connecting men to men and men to God. And then the church I attend, which I help co-lead our men's ministry and do some other stuff there as well. We've been talking a lot about hospitality 
I don't know if you know this guy. There's a guy named Matthew Sleeth who I've gotten to know. He's he's a guy I'd love to connect you to offline. He's from Lexington. He's got a book out called Hope Always, which really dives deep into the church world and suicide, mental health, and where we are culturally. And I asked him at an event that we hosted several months ago, what is the number one way in 21 years you've grown in Christ? He's almost 70, and he said hospitality. So you clearly, you and Trish have a clear lineage to hospitality. And what does that look like then on Monday nights for you? What's the specifics? What's well, the land? We have to make ready the house of God. So our, our floor gets vacuumed and swept probably three times that day. You know, my wife and I are probably both a little bit OCD, you know, so she really cares. Sometimes she sets it up on Sunday night and tells nobody to breathe on Mondays, you know, because she wants the house clean, which I don't think college students care. But Not she at all. Cares. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? She cares. And then. She, she's just really, really, she, she has a better gift than, than me. I'm actually a, an ambivert. I'm about 50% extrovert and 50% introvert. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. No. So I can do people all day, but it does de-energize me. Mm-hmm. I prize some time alone. She like never depletes relationally. Wow. So like, she just loves it, you know, loves it and loves it and loves it. 8 30, nine o'clock at night on Monday night. I'm like, okay, get out of my house in the name of Jesus. Great to have you guys go home. You know, I need to replenish. And is food a big part of that? Or I mean, what the, what's, oh, yeah, man. what's the flow oh, of the yeah. evening we, look like? We, we, we cook and, and, and provide food for them every Monday night during the year, everything from spaghetti to uh, pizza rolls, mm. uh, Totinos? everything in between. We have, we have cereal bar some Monday nights. We have a blast, man. We eat well. I, I love it. We were talking about this in one of my small groups today. We call them locker rooms. And one of the things we were talking about was it seems like, almost the truer the hospitality is and being effective, it's just simpler. It's not trying to make some massive whatever. It's It can be the simplest thing, whether that's cheese and crackers and pickles or a taco bar or something yeah. super simple where you really get to focus on each other versus being a Mary and Martha and, you know, killing yourself to make something happen. It becomes more entertainment versus really digging into kind of that Acts 2, Acts 4 um, discipleship. So, Sean, one of the questions I really wanted to know from you because I, I think you live in – kind of this really dual business church world that both are important. And I'm sure you experienced some overlap. Talk about leadership development and discipleship, which I think in many ways are similar. And yet when I'm pouring into someone, I kind of got to separate my mind. What's the point of this? And it may happen within the same hour, hour and a half meeting. Where is it leadership development versus where is it discipleship? And speak to maybe your heart and your investment in both of those arenas. Yeah. So, you know, my response will be somewhat controversial because I do believe they're the same. You know, the word disciple means learner. You know, the whole life, everyone had disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one who had disciples. A lot of the religious leaders were mentors of the day and they had disciples, people they were trying to reproduce themselves into. So it wasn't a unique Christian concept. You know, they were following this person, trying to emulate them and the other person is trying to reproduce themselves into them so that they have a legacy that mm. outlives them. I really feel like that's our responsibility, whether we get paid to be good. I tell people there's only two categories of people. People who are paid to be good, that's pastors, and people who are good for nothing. <laughs> and they're, and honestly, biblically, there's supposed to be a whole lot more people good for nothing mm. and, and keep their jobs in the workplace. I and I call them shepherds between Sundays. Mm. And most of the CEOs and C-suite leaders that we work with, like, they feel a moral obligation to be good stewards of the people that work for them. But they can sometimes fall prey to doing instead of developing. 
and crushing the deal and whatever, just as pastors can get so focused on putting on the show on Sunday and using the staff to put on the show mm. versus viewing the people as the goal. <laughs> the, the, the team is the work and, and that should be true. I don't care what we do for a living. And of course, I talk about this in my writings, our greatest legacy will not be the nickels and noses years from now. It will be, hey, let me tell you about this person mm. that came in as an intern and they came up through the ranks and they went out and did this and they started a company and they started a church and they became a campus pastor. And, you know, what we boast about in the long term is how we've been able to reproduce ourselves and other mm. people. So leadership development, it is, it is discipleship. Oh. 101, if you ask me. You know, it's interesting about what you just said there, I, and uh, I feel like I'm going to go down this road of just promoting a bunch of other stuff, but I don't know if you're familiar with Kyle Eidelman's latest book, One at a Time. I really like how he takes this mass thing where he's, you know, preaching to, you know, one of the 10 largest churches in the country in Louisville, their southeast, and really breaking things down to one conversation at a time, one thought at a time, one party at a time, one, you know, whatever. And I really like how you really brought that out and what you're saying. And, and ultimately, that's what you and Trish are doing on Monday nights. With the, yeah, there's 70 people at your house or whatever, but it's telling a story. It's it's living relation. I'm sure in between those meetings, you're probably getting coffee with someone here and there. And and uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to some stuff here in a little bit about where you take that very serious on your end, on the receiving end, which really blew my mind in the book when you talk about how much money you've probably spent on being coached yourself. So let's get into your book, Building a Killer Team. It's been out for not even a month yet. Is that right? Give or take. Yeah. As of time of this. Yeah. A month. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and I've been reading it and you make it very, very accessible. I, I usually, when I look at a book, go to the last page and say, how many numbers, what's it got? So I think you're shy of 200, which is music to my ears. I saw a book. Someone told me to read the other day and it was 64 pages. And I'm like, that's, that's my book, 64 pages. I'm on it. So one of the things you talked about early in the book that really grabbed my attention was you talked about perfection versus excellence. And you talked about perfection being a singular elusive moment and excellence being a habit. Expand on that perfection versus excellence. Yeah, it's really about who we are and what we do. You know, I tell leaders all the time, we're not responsible for what we can't do mm. and who we don't have, but we are 100% responsible to God for what we do have. And what we do have. So what I can do is take response. What I can own, what I can control is my schedule, not be a victim. Amen. I can become morally excellent. I can become disciplined, excellent. I can be, you know, order my day and order my life. I tell leaders all the time, I'm honest enough to admit I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know, and I want to surround myself people smarter than me. Well, if that's your desire and that's your goal, then follow my math. They won't follow you because you're smarter than them. Why will they follow you then? Because you're more disciplined, mm. because you order your life, mm. because you're a good man, you're a good husband, you're a good father, because you know how to shut it off and shut it down, and you outwork everybody when you're working, you know. And so it, it's really this desire to get up every day and model the way for people in the way you live. And so I would love to think and believe that. If I'm not fooling myself, and I ask my wife often because she'll shoot straight with me, am I coaching out of the overflow? Hmm. You know, am I living excellently, not, you know, not just coaching excellence? And it really is a habit that we live and breathe. And, and most overnight successes take 10 years for that reason oh. or more or more. 
So when you talked about part of that being outworking another person or whatever, you know, not to make that, you know, strictly based on competition or whatever, how do you outwork other people and yet do that as, a, as an overflow and coming out of rest? Because that could be tricky for some people where they think outworking is putting in 18, 20 hour days. Yeah, no, actually, you know, you, you know, this, I've taught on and around it a lot. You know, I, I don't believe in balance. I don't think it's biblical or beneficial. I've never met a balanced person. I don't think Jesus was balanced. You know, it's, it's really living. I think what the Bible advocates is rhythm. It's intensity, rest, intensity, rest. So when you're working, like I think every minute of your day should be proactively filled. I was backstage with Craig Groeschel a few years ago, and I said, hey, what's the one thing you're working on right now? And he said, I want to initiate more than I react. Mm. And I thought, if Craig Groeschel needs to work on that, maybe a few other leaders mm. you know, need to work on that. One of the things we do with our clients, what we call a calendar audit. Like, Let me see your calendar. And like I'm looking back over the last 30 days, and there's a bunch of blank space. I know they were jacked up busy, Okay but it basically reveals their life was one big reaction the last 30 days versus ordering, planning, you know, every single working minute. And I tell guys, if you're not able to get it done in 40 or 50 hours, and it might take 50, by the way, do you think it's because God's put more on you than what you can handle or because you're not managing the 45, 50 hours well that God's given you? And I, I can tell you which one I think it is. You know, Can you come so, speak to a lot of people I know? Because I, I, you know, I had a, I had an interesting theological discussion about this with a friend of mine the other day, and he, we were talking about people being too busy in a season versus people just being busy, and he was kind of justifying, you know, people being busy. And I'm like, I'm sorry if you are busy for 70 years of your life, too busy. A, I don't think it's biblical, and B, why am I going to ask you to do something anyway? Because you clearly should be saying no. So you saying yes to me when you should be saying no to a whole bunch of stuff. I'm sorry, it's just not biblical. That's not a theology we should support. Would you agree with that based on what you I just agree. said? I agree. Now, my team will tell you when I'm working, I'm about as intense as it gets. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, we're going to get it done, man. I ain't got time. We, we're, we're moving. But then I have a daily finish line. I mean, I have a daily time that I quit. It's usually 4, 4.30 in the afternoon for me because I usually start around 6.30 or 7 in the morning. You know, and so I shut down and I, I really don't work, you know, and then I, I take a day off. Most of the time I take two days off every mm -hmm. single week. And I was just thinking about it this morning. My first appointment was 7 a.m. this morning, but I'm totally re-energized, ready to take on the day. I'm not tired. I'm not hungover or whatever, because I, I, re I replenished, mm -hmm. you know, over the weekend. So we think we're gaining by working overtime, but actually we're depleting ourselves or of our most innovative, creative self. Yeah. No, I agree. That's great. Well, let's stay on that. And as I was reading the book, I was really thinking about what it would be like in and around you when we're in the same space over the course of a day, a couple of days a week. And I thought, wow, it's, it's ramped up. It's, it's, I can't imagine. I wouldn't sense that, that we're in this together relationship side. You make a quote in there, something to the effect of, and I'm taking out of context a little bit, but the quote stands out and means something. You talked about the strength of relationships determining the velocity of mission. Take that further. Well, I didn't invent the idea. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it comes out of studying psychology and uh, Cubby talked about it years ago. You know, he wrote a book called the speed of trust. Mm-hmm. And a team just simply cannot move faster than the speed of trust. And for trust to exist, we've got to be honest with each other. For us to feel like we can be honest with each other, that comes 
through proximity and consistency, you know, together. I don't, I don't trust you yet, Jeff, because we don't know each other all that well. I need to get in the saddle with you, do life with you, get to know you. We need to have our first fight, you know, and I'll, I'll make say, that easy course, for you. I'll make that really easy for you. <laughs> I'm pretty confident. I say the opposite of conflict is artificial harmony. So we need mm. to have a few of those and cross that threshold and, and, and learn how to, to do life together. And man, once we have that alignment, you know, not uniformity, but unity and we trust each other. Well, I can call you out. You can call me out. We can disagree. We don't take each other personal. We don't walk wide circles around each other. We don't fake it. Like, dude, a decision can't grow. I mean, an organization can't grow faster than the pace at which it makes decisions. So it literally enables faster conversations, faster decisions. And so the organization can literally move faster. It can affect the bottom line in a company mm. and the growth of a church if we really trust each other. Yeah. So you spend a good bit of time in the book talking about meetings and you make a comment about whether, and I think these are, this was probably particularly more in a, a staff or team meeting where people could look at each other and say, well, whether it's based on this or this person not being there or whatever, do we really need to have this meeting? And when I read that, I was convicted because we have a great team, my board. Um, I have a, a woman who's part-time who works with us. And I think we really enjoy being around each other, but I know we've had a couple times where it was like, eh, do we really need to have this meeting or can we put it off? And that just really convicted me. Like, no, we should be dying to get together. So speak to the purposes of meetings and then why you put a lot of value on those. And I left kind of where you talked about that feeling like, okay, really any meeting should be something we're looking forward to. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, it starts with me. I need that my team needs to know that I'm not just using them to get the work done, that I really care about them as human beings. But when I make the comment, Hey, do we really have anything we need to meet about today? Can we just skip? What I'm really saying is you're not in trouble. Okay. I don't need anything from you today, so I don't want to hang out with you. What, what I'm in essence communicating is that we have a transactional relationship. And I don't know. I know we don't mean to, but that's what we're communicating over time. Why do we meet together? Because I like you. Because mm. I care about you. Because I want to invest into you. Because I want to reproduce myself into you. Because I need to. Tr One of the difficult traits of a leader is training people to see what you see. Mm and think like you think. And without being with a leader consistently, you're just not able to transmit, you know, those values into someone else. So I say outside of your personal relationship with God, your date night, your family night, like your one-on-one -on -one meetings with your direct report should be the very next thing on your calendar. And if it has to get pushed around a little bit from time to time, that's okay, but let's make that the exception, not the rule. Elsewise, you're communicating to your team, hey, if I don't have anything else better to do, yeah. <laughs> I'll hang out with you guys. You know, that that's the last thing we'd want to communicate, but so often we inadvertently do. Sure. Uh, you know, there's that famous book, I think it's Cloud or whoever has the book called Crucial Conversations, and there's various numbers people like to play with. You really land in the book on 90% versus 10% to go on the last 10% in conversations that are difficult. And I can think of a recent conversation I had with someone where I needed to challenge them on something. And right as we're kind of getting to that 10%, I think in their mind, sort of based, I think they're on the spectrum a little bit. Some of that might've been part of it. And maybe I need to extend grace or they just kind of checked out and said, well, we did what we needed to do. And I'm sitting there getting frustrated. Like, no, 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 we're going the final mile. 
So speak to that whole 90-10 thing, because I think that is so big in ministry, in the business world, you name it, in relationships and family, where we'll go most of the way, but we'll hold back that little bit that I thought, okay, it's going to get a little too messy now. So you hit that so well in the book. Talk about the importance of the 90-10 thing. Well, you know, I tell leaders all the time, first of all, if you're ever hearing Sean speak and you're like, I've heard that somewhere before, I guarantee it. I've never had an original thought. <laughs> like everything I know, I learned from a great leader. And if you think about it, you same with you, same with 100%. everybody on the values of coaching. Totally agree. But I read a sentence in one of Patrick Lencioni's book where he talked about most of us say 90% of what we're thinking. And I thought, man, that is so, so true. And I just kind of built a framework and went from there on and it's taken a life of its own. Um, but most of us hold back that last 10% in a meeting or in a conversation or in a relationship for fear of rocking the boat, you know, for fear of getting fired, for fear of causing conflict. When in reality, you know, if we hold back that last 10%, you and I, Jeff, I'm going to end, I'm going to be tempted to go share that other 10% with someone else. And that's where things get toxic, you know, with the team. So a commitment that I made to my team almost 20 years ago now. Uh, all the pastors that worked for me at the time was, hey, guys, I just want you to know you're going to get my last 10%. I'm never going to go home and say something to my spouse about you that I'm not willing to say to you. Now, that's probably going to mean sometimes I'm going to hurt your feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's probably going to mean we're going to have some more conflict, but at least you'll know where I stand. Now, if you're not meeting my expectations, when you frustrate me, you know, whatever you're going to know. But I'm also going to encourage you, Okay. But that also gave me moral authority at the time to flip it around to my pastor and say, so don't go home to your wife at the time who's got to listen to my preaching on Sundays because we'll forgive each other. She'll never hear one of my sermons ever again, you know, on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. So you come to me when I frustrate you. I'm an Enneagram 8. I will hurt your feelings, okay? I will step on your toes. So it's not if I'm going to do that. It's when and how often, and I won't know it. So and, And we built that culture you know, on our team. And we had lots of conflict, but boy, we had high levels of trust. Don't you mess with our family because we knew we had each other's backs. Now, is that a slippery slope? Because obviously with our spouse, they're going to be our front line. They're going to be, you know, we're going to talk, you know, you're going to talk to Trish. I'm going to talk to my wife, Kara, about things that are going on that they know about that I'm not in it with everybody else. But does Trish have to come to you some and say, hey, um, listen here, uh, Sean, you got to go talk to them about what you just told me because that's not living to the standard you've created. And how do you kind of navigate that to not have a lot of gray in that? Well, I, notice I didn't say don't tell your spouse. Just don't say something to your sure. spouse you're not willing to say to them. And so often, you know, I'm a gracer. I'm a truther and my wife is a gracer, you know, and so I, I'm all about the truth. And my wife. And so I'll, I'll after I've made the commitment to go and talk to someone, I'll still run it by my wife. Mm. And she'll say, Sean, whatever you do, don't say it like that. <laughs> so I'm better for having had that conversation, yeah. but I'm still not saying something to her that I'm not going to be willing to say. To, if you think about it, it lacks integrity. It literally lacks integrity for me to say, hey, what's up, Jeff? You know, yeah. good to see you. And in the church, church staffs are infamous about it. But we honestly, when we launched the, the, the marketplace, we, we've worked with a $9 billion a year commercial finance company offices on the 26th floor of the Rockefeller Plaza, uh, overlooking the iconic ice rink. I go into my first session with them and I say, I, I walk through the initial assessment we give and to a person on the executive team, they said, we don't hold our leaders accountable mm. like we should wow. for fear of pushback and retribution. And I'm like, oh my God, if, if a commercial finance company 
you know, struggles with the last 10%, there's probably not a, yeah. an organization on the planet that stops short of where we need to stop mm. out there yeah. normally. Wow. Let's talk about personal coaching. You talk in the book about you've spent, you said probably easily six figures on personal coaching for yourself. Where do you go with, I mean, tell me about that. Yeah. And over By a long way, period of time. Be, it might be seven figures over my lifetime. Yeah. You know, it's, it's definitely a quarter of a million plus in the last seven or eight years. So, and people, you know, people, people have kind of marveled, like, how are you able to do real estate? And then, you know, go start a church and then leap off of that into coaching and seemingly have been successful in all of them. And I tell people, I'm not that smart. I've just had great coaching. Like I get it. And the value of coaching is you get to skip over another leader's pain. But the number one mistake I see leaders make is isolation. We're not learning. We're not growing. I have them tell me all the time, well, I'm not really a reader. I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, I really can't afford coaching right now. To me, your personal development should be the first. Th it's just like your time alone with the Lord. It's like, you know, the first thing you do is put a little bit of money back into savings and for taxes, and then you work on yourself. Because mm -hmm. as the leader, you're the lid. You're the lid. So you got to invest in yourself. And it took me years not to feel guilty about that. But I finally stumbled onto it, and it made all the difference in the world. And the organizations I've led have never had a train wreck, not because I'm that good, mm. because I've had great coaches yeah. that have kept the wheels on for me. So I, I've personally benefited from, you know, being one-on-one -on -one with elite, elite men and women of God. Mm. That's so cool. I, I tell people, I'm, so I'm connected a decent bit here, and I'm sure you guys have them down in the Birmingham area, BNI, Business Network International. And, you know, they pay five dollars $600 a, you know, a year to be involved in this networking group where they meet weekly and, you know, have this hour and a half, whatever meeting, and, you know, do referrals for the different uh, um, niches of business. And when people get hung up on that, I'm like, if you knew you could spend $600 on something and you'd profit $3,000, would not you do that in a heartbeat? If you knew you'd profit $30,000, wouldn't you do that in a hundred thousand? Like, and I just think it's, we're so short-sighted sometimes, whether it's ministry, business or whatever, we look at a cost and not look at what's the return of that cost. If we do it the way it's intended, no brainer. So more to get into the book, but let's skip real quick. We'll go a little down a tangent. I do these rapid five questions. They're a little silly, a little informative, but they're really quick hitting. So Sean, what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? A king size Snicker bar and a Diet Coke. Wow, you got two in there, and nobody's ever said Snickers. People quick, people are quick to go to the cereal route, but you, you were not shy about Snickers and a king size, king size Snicker. And how big is the Diet Coke? How many ounces? Twenty ounce, man. Oh, oh, wow! You limited yourself there. Yeah. Did you like? Uh, are, are you like in the uh, peanut butter Snickers equally as well, or do you like the traditional? I like I like peanut butter a lot, but I like the straight up Snickers. Okay. Okay. What's your favorite book that's not written by Sean Lovejoy that you most want to gift to other people? Ruthless Consistency. It's a mm. book I read. My favorite book of 2019. Who, who wrote that? Basically, basically, the idea of the book is that it's not your product. It's not your strategy. It's not your technology. It's your ruthless discipline and consistency that's going to make all the difference, you know, to beat the competition. Mm. So it's one of my favorites out there. Wow, a guy named, is it Michael Canick? Is that right? Yeah, Canick. Yeah. Wow, you got me wanting to check that one out. Okay. So here's one for you. And you got, do you have all girls? Is that right? 
only two girls and a boy. Oh, you do have a boy. Okay, so and, and I, your your kids, if I remember correctly, are a little bit older. So maybe you got to think back. Yeah, I got a granddaughter now. I got to throw that in there. <sighs> wow, that's praise God for that. Now you get to really spoil them. So your family is off on vacation. Let's say you're heading up my way. You're heading to Ohio, and uh, you kind of know when you're planning on stopping. Traffic or bathroom breaks mess you up. And let's say you're 15 minutes away from where you planned on stopping and you're getting off at this exit and you see these three places, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, and we're going to assume Ohio had In-N-Out Burger, which we do not. Where would the Lovejoy family stop? Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, or In-N-Out Burger? We're going to do Chick-fil-A. I didn't have any doubt that was going to be your answer. Is there anything you need to elaborate <laughs> on with that? Or what's your go-to there, Sean? Believe it or not, I get the salad. So little known, little known love joy fact. I haven't had meat or in almost 10 years. Not Any kind chicken, of meat? Really? Not pork, not anything in uh, almost 10 years. No bacon? No bacon. Wow. I'm, I'm kind of tempted to want to end the call right now, but I, I, I think you got more good. To, so you said you <laughs> wanted to add value to me. I don't know. Protein laden salad wow. there that'll knock your socks wow. off. It's good stuff though. Wow. All right, whether this is solo or this is you and Trish on a Friday, Saturday night, you are old school, you're flipping through channels, you stumble across this movie, and you're like, we're not going anywhere, we're staying with this movie. What movie would you solo or you, you as a married man watch that movie every single time? I'm ashamed to admit this, but it would be somewhere along the lines of Downton Abbey. Oh, my goodness. My wife some is British or- crime uh, series or something like that. Like we, we're, we're all up in all that. So great. My wife has already ordered her tickets with two of her best friends Thursday night. They're going to yep. opening night of Downton Abbey. She did not bother to ask me about that one. She's just, she's going, it is not. I've been, I went with my wife to the last one. I'll do it on this one. Wow. Check you out. And anyway, the important question of these five, it's always last. Who was your first celebrity crush? Man, I would say it had to be this. This, this was going to shock you again. Okay. I would say Tom Cruise, Maverick, Top Gun, Man Crush. I wanted really? to be him. Him or him and or Iceman. Wow. You know, me and my best friend. Do you remember the do you remember the high five cool thing they did on the volleyball court where they hit up top? I never saw the movie, spin but I been around yeah, I saw and that. they hit underneath. Uh-huh. My best friend and I, who looked a little bit like Iceman. We had that high five when we played athletics. Wow. And I really thought I was going to fly, fly fighter planes, you know, when I grew up. So, Sean, I'm 52. You're how old again? I'll be 52 my next birthday. Okay, so we're close in age. How did you not say Elizabeth Shue and join me on the Elizabeth Shue train? <laughs> she was hot. Now, I will say that. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day. And with Elizabeth Shue, you can just pick your movie. You say, is it Cocktail? Is it Adventures in Babysitting? Now, is it Cobra Kai? Is it, you know, whatever else? So, but you went to the top. I, I've still never seen Top Gun. I'm not planning on seeing the new one. I'm like, sometimes I rebel against saying, yep, I never saw that movie everybody loves. Oh, well. Um, I'm going, man. Okay. Going. All right. Well, let's, I want to combine a couple thoughts. So you being a reader and leader you are, and, and I try to do the same. I'm going to combine, combine two thoughts here. Carrie Newhoff says we can only be great at a couple things. John Acuff says we have to be willing to suck at a couple things. What are a couple things you're horrendous at and where do you kill it? No pun intended when I say kill it. Yeah. So believe it or not, like, um, I can do administration. My, my, my top three strengths are strategic, futuristic, and responsibility. 
So like there's a moral obligation to do what's right, but also to like take care of the details, but I'm not administration and spreadsheets sort of drain me, you know, and when my team wants to pull me, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're coaching dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations and their credit card fails this and this is happening and there's all these mosquitoes and all that sort of sucks the life out of me. So I can do it, but it de-energizes me. So I tell leaders, you know, once you get to that first threshold of success, like you're going to make it. Okay. Mm -hmm. I really feel like from that point on, the, the most important thing you can steward is your emotional energy. Mm. So life will suck the life out of you. You know, itself, people will suck the life out of you. So you need to really live in the lane of things that energize you and delegate the things that de-energize, you know, you. And for me, spreadsheets and the business side of things, though I can do it, I coach, I teach people how to build those systems and scale them. But as far as I like to set it up and then, just give me a one page report. Don't pull me back into the weeds of, you know, all, all of that. So that's just an example of how I tell guys to like really get the two or three things that energize you and delegate everything else. So you're like one of your strengths, obviously is you're just, you're highly, highly disciplined probably in every area of your life. I try to be, uh, try to be. Does it ever cause tension in your marriage or is Trish just say that's great. And she's similar or she, really values where your discipline or is oh, ever yeah. so rigid you have that no it's... idea. Well, like she and I have the same Myers Briggs profile. So you've heard opposites attract. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it, you know, we call it intense fellowship. You know, <laughs> we're, we're both obsessive, compulsive discipline. She's already exercised twice this morning. She's been on a walk and been down here in our, in our gym, you know? And so like, this is how we roll. This yeah. is how we roll. Yeah. So even though she still eats meat and I don't. Okay. Okay. So just because you made me laugh just so hard there, just the thought just hit me like what I'm curious. So I love comedy. I, I say it all the time. If I only interviewed on my podcast, one group of people, I, I would do comedians hands down. And I love talking to guys like you. I love talking to people in the world of sports. I love talking to musicians. I love talking to comedians. What makes you just belly ache laugh as a leader and as a man? We love Nate Burkotts. You know, uh, he's, he's one of our favorites. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the pastors at our church is his brother-in-law. So I've got a chance to hang out with him backstage a couple of times. I think he's hilarious. I think humor is a real skill, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think when I communicate on stages, I think it's one of my strengths, you know, to be appropriately self-deprecating, mm -hmm. you know, and use humor. And um, I, I love that. I think humor is a, is a drug and it's a, a value and a need in today's world. One of the, one of the bank presidents years ago who attended my church, you'll love this. He came up to me, Jeff, and said, you know, one of the reasons why I love our church is that it makes me laugh. You make me laugh. Hmm. He said, I never laugh outside this building. Yeah. He said, but every time I'm here, I'm like belly laughing over well, something you're saying. And I thought I, it was literally one of the best compliments I think I've ever paid. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting about that. I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in whether it's comedy or music or really even books and things like that as well. I hate when we throw the term Christian in because it, I don't think God ever intended it for it to be an adjective. And I really believe laughter is one of the holiest things we have the opportunity to participate in. And I know you, you know, you have the business and pastoral background. Sometimes people will say singing worship songs is one of the most unifying things there is. I think it's being 
at a place where people collectively are laughing. Like when I go to a comedy club or hearing, you know, like a, a John Christ or a Michael Jr. or Tim Hawkins tell a joke and there's hundreds of or thousands of people around looking at each other and seeing, you know, like I can tell a lot about a person by how they laugh and what they laugh at. Or it's so, like it my soul leaps. When I went on my first sabbatical uh, eight years ago, I remember talking to Mark Batterson and saying, okay, I think you've probably done sabbatical really well. Tell me what I should do because I've never been on one. And he goes, actually, Jeff, I've stunk at it. I've done really poorly. He goes, I've treated it too often like I'm supposed to be a martyr. And he goes, think about three or four things you just love and feed yourself well over that. One of the number one things I did was I said, I'm going to laugh a lot. I went to comedy clubs. I watched a lot of funny stuff. And I took a deeper dive into that than I usually do. I mean, I could, I could watch comedians in cars on co- drinking, getting coffee, Seinfeld's thing, all oh, day. It's so good. It's so, and, so 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 good. And I love so that you, good. I love that you mentioned Nate Bargatze because we had um, Brian Bates on here, who's kind of his co-host. And when when Brian, Nate, and uh, Aaron Weber get together on that podcast and just go and they talk so about it's a it's a supernatural skill. It's a spiritual gift if you want the truth. But I'll tell you this. The churches that are growing mm. are not the churches that teach the most expositionally correct sermons, even though pastors think that. It's the churches that have the most fun, mm. where there's passion, and there's a life-giving culture, and people become because they get to, not because they have to. And I tell pastors, get a life, man. Like, have some fun. If you want to, if you want your church to be a fun place to attend, like, you got to become a fun person. But I meet these guys say, well, my ministry is my hobby. I'm like, get a life, man. Get See, a life. And you know, want- and the same with your work. Like, you're more human. You're more approachable. You, you want to see everybody in the meeting sit up on the edge of their seat, start talking about what you did this weekend and something, a stupid thing you made. I fell off the back of my jet ski with all my clothes on Saturday, okay? And even though somebody might have just tuned out on this podcast, when I said that, everybody tuned right back in. Yeah. yeah. And see, that's what <laughs> Because we care about voyeuristically almost, like looking inside people's lives. Yeah. So be real, be approachable, be human, have fun, yeah. laugh at yourself. All of that yeah. is, is powerful when it comes to communication and culture setting, frankly. See, and that's, yeah, I, I think it's so tough because when you just said that at the very beginning, I thought, you know, there's people theologically who are tuning out with what you just said right there. And I'm like, but it's just true. And I think God is in that. God honors that. Brian Bates, when he was on here, told a story about telling some kind of jokes that were tied to racism. And he was the only white person there at this comedy club doing it because people were cracking up laughing. He goes, it's just me acknowledging something that is John Brannion was on here and he talked about anything that's, tr- that's funny is because it's true. If it's not funny, if it's not true, it's not funny. But once something's true, true uh, I did not know we go down this road, but I, l- I love talking you know, about laughter and comedy with you. So Sean, let me, let me close with this based on your time and thanks for the generosity. And again, people need to check out building a killer team. And I love the, the subtitle or the second part without killing yourself or your team. What is Sean Lovejoy becoming? Not, not where are you? What is God doing? Holy Spirit, refiner's fire. Who are you becoming? I think I'm becoming more patient. I think that I have a longer fuse than I used to have. You know, I think that I'm giving more grace than I used to give. And I'm more focused on the long run than ever before and finishing well. And maybe that comes with age, but maybe it doesn't because a lot of people just never seem to learn it. Hmm. But I think I'm learning that and allowing opportunity to come to you instead of 
over trying to over manufacture momentum. You know, I made the mistake, made the comment a few years ago to one of my pastors. I said, "Man, I'm looking to see that year when Courage to Lead doubles in, in one day and one and never looks back." He said, "Why would you want that?" Mm. <laughs> and he was exactly right. So we've grown every year, year over year growth. You know, and it was the same when I was a pastor. You know, I could probably build it all bigger and faster, but. I'm happily married. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. My kids love me, you know, and we all, there's zero drama in my family or among my coaches. And man, this sounds like I'm boasting. Like I kind of am, you know, that somehow God's been able to give us a special grace to do that. So, but I think I'm getting better at that. Well, and you've clearly, you, you clearly prioritize digging the well deep. I mean, you're not resting on last week or last year, 10 years ago's, De, you know, deposit into yourself, Holy Spirit, you setting yourself up for that. You're clearly making all the right moves and having the right margin to allow yourself to be and grow and become who God wants you to do. Well, so, I love doing that for leaders, you know, Amen. Love doing it from the overflow. So courage to lead.com would be the number one place. I think I'd point people to where else can people find you? Should they find you? And obviously go to Amazon for how to build a killer team. What, where else can they go? Yeah, actually, I'll give them the book. If they'll visit killerteambook.net, I'll give them the book for the one of the reasons I self I've done two nationally released books. This one I self published because I can literally give it away. I'm not trying to get rich on books. I want to, I want to, I want to encourage leaders, I want to facilitate leaders. And of course, at the end of the day, some of those guys are going to want us to coach them. Mm. You know, that's where we make our living. Sure. So I'll give you the book for the, my cost of printing it and shipping it to you, killerteambook.net. So, I want to every, I think I'm proud of the book. I think every leader who's ever led a team or desires to lead a team and teams that work together should work through it together. Oh, amen. Well, Sean, thanks. It's a, I remember talking to you before. It's a joy. We've done a little bit of communicating here and there. I know I mentioned to you a good friend of mine who just got a significant role in up move and upswing. And I know Katie and you were going to get that guy a book. So look forward to more dialogue and uh, thanks for investing in the folks that listen to the Pinkleton Pulisade podcast today. Honored to be with you, my friend. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pulisade podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at the Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.